This podcast is brought to you by Link, simply the best way to learn languages. After you listen to the podcast, sign up for a free account at Link, L-I-N-G-Q dot com, and study the full transcript using Link's revolutionary learning tools. Uh, we're talking today with Paul Nation, who is a leading expert on uh, language learning and English language learning in particular, who's located at the University of New Zealand, I believe. Hi, Paul. Hi, how are you? Fine, thank you. Is it, in fact, the University of New Zealand? No, it used to be about a hundred years ago, but now okay. it's, we're at Victoria University of Wellington. Okay, I'm sorry. Named, I'm... named after Queen Victoria because it was started when she was on the throne. Okay, we last met when I was in Taiwan about two or three years ago, and mm. you spoke to an audience of about a hundred uh, eager uh, English teachers in Taiwan, oh, yep. and you yep. you explained your four threads. And it was very interesting. Four strands. Four yeah. strands, rather. And you were able yeah. to, to refer to your own experience in learning Japanese and I think other languages and so forth. And, and maybe we could begin by, maybe I could ask you to explain the four strands. Sure. The, the idea behind the four strands is to make sure that there's a range of opportunities for learning. So it's really a way of a teacher or a course designer checking a course to make sure that there's a proper range of opportunities for the learners to learn the language. And the four strands are these. The strand is a strand of meaning-focused input, mm -hmm. which, is, which Steve Krashen would call comprehensible input, mm -hmm. and that's learning through reading and through listening. And there are certain conditions which have to apply for that learning to take place. And... Um, um, Stephen Krashen calls it comprehensible input. From a vocabulary perspective, it means that only about one in 50 of the running words should be unknown to the people mm -hmm. who are doing the reading or the listening. One in 50? One in 50. Okay. Now, surprise, that's, that, we've done an experiment to show that. It would be good to have more research on it. And right. In fact, we've got a PhD student who's going to be starting doing more research on that. Right. But it actually agrees with a figure that Michael West arrived at uh, almost 80 years ago when he mm -hmm. started designing graded readers, the very first graded readers. Right. So that's the first strand, the okay. strand of learning through input. The second strand is the strand of learning through output. And I call it meaning-focused output, mm -hmm. where the learners are focusing on conveying messages, mm -hmm. getting messages across to listeners or getting messages across to readers through writing mm -hmm. and through speaking. And having to produce language makes you pay attention to input in a, in a different way, mm -hmm. but also provides good opportunity for consolidating knowledge that you've already got. Mm -hmm. The third strand is the strand of language-focused learning. Uh, Rod Ellis and others call it form-focused instruction, but I'm not mm -hmm. so happy with that name because it doesn't actually have to be instruction by a teacher, mm -hmm. and it can focus on more than form. It can mm -hmm. focus on meaning as well. Mm -hmm. So I call it language-focused learning, and that means deliberate learning of language features through mm -hmm. studying the sound system, the spelling system, vocabulary, and so on. Mm -hmm. I'm actually very excited about a piece of PhD research that one of our students has completed. Mm -hmm. And that student looked to see if you learnt vocabulary deliberately on word cards, mm -hmm. does this give you the kind of knowledge, the mm -hmm. implicit knowledge, which is needed for normal language use? 
Mm-hmm. And she, she actually found that this deliberate learning resulted in both explicit knowledge and implicit knowledge, okay. which is different from the learning of grammar, because with the learning of grammar, it's, there seems to be evidence that there is no direct route into implicit knowledge through the deliberate learning of grammar. It's a rather indirect route. Right. But for vocab, it seems different. Okay. Deliberately study vocab is available for impl- in implicit knowledge for normal language use. Mm-hmm. So that's the third strand. Right. And then the fourth strand is the strand of fluency development. And fluency development simply means getting good at using what you already know. Mm-hmm. And this should be at every level of a language course. So even when you've just learned the numbers in a very elementary course, you should learn how to recognize those numbers very quickly. Mm-hmm. So if someone says 98, you can get 98 quickly. You can understand what they say. Right. And so the idea with fluency development mm-hmm. is you get really quick and fast at using what you've already learned. Okay. Now, now, three of these four strands, right. meaning-focused input, meaning-focused output, and fluency development, mm-hmm. are message-focused strands. Okay. They, would, they would fit nicely into a communicative approach to language teaching, for example. Mm-hmm. The language-focused learning strand is a deliberate study strand, and so it's a bit different from the other three. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to have all four in a course, and you have to have roughly equal proportions of the four. All right. Okay. Well, like, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, I... I we're doing what we're doing with our system, and uh, I very much would like to have, and I very much appreciate you agreeing to sort of have an interchange with me because I'm not uh, a university professor. I'm someone who's been in business and who has a great interest in languages, and and we've developed a system called Link. But if I listen to the things that you're saying that you've sim- that you've described to me here, I'll tell you where what we do is similar and different. Uh, we place a lot of emphasis on input. Uh, uh-huh. One in fifty unknown words strikes me as very low, and what we do, and I'll explain why. Because I would, I would agree with you if I were reading a book and I had nothing else to help me. But yep. I have been learning Russian using our system, starting from scratch, and uh, you know, after you know, initially you can't be one in fifty because initially it's zero. Uh, That's right. You know. And, uh, and because what we do is you read something, you, we ask people to listen to it three, four, five times and to read it. They look up unknown words. The words go to a database. This starts to develop then a database that they can look at in terms of flashcards. It develops statistics, et cetera, et cetera. So I, uh, so I, I listened to sort of, you know, call it learner language for a while and read learner language, listening 20, 30, 40 times. And then I moved into, you know, authentic content. And of course, when I first went into authentic content, our system tells me that there's 40 or 50% new words there for me. So that was very hard going, but I did it. Uh, now I'm down to about 15 to 20% new words if I'm reading Turgenev or Tolstoy or whatever. But our learners say that they like to be between 10 and 20%. Now, granted, well, we're talking yeah. about total words so that we're not talking about word families but people are quite comfortable uh, as long as they're reading on a computer with access to an online dictionary where stuff is going into uh, a database Uh, you know our system highlights words that they have previously saved so they can refresh on those 
So we tend to, you know, so yes, input, uh, yes, comprehensible. We tend to encourage people to deal with something that's a little more challenging, and a lot of our learners say they're happy doing so. So yeah, I'm not okay. sure that that contradicts what you're saying, but that's sort of what we're doing. Yeah, well, the way I'd look at it is that, first of all, the 98% coverage is for unassisted reading. Okay. So that means right. you're reading without a dictionary and without that help. Right. Now, I guess you it's a sort of... Uh, how would you say, almost intuitive personal observation of when in your reading most of your focus is on language features or most of your focus is on getting the message. Right. And so if you're doing assisted reading, as you suggest, that that assisted reading could be meaning-focused input as long as the major focus is on the message of the text. Let's put it this way. The way we do it and what we try to suggest and the way I'm motivated is I'm interested in the story. And so if we can get our learners, again, to select content that they like, which in my case is 19th century literature, which might be a bit of an esoteric interest, you know, I don't mind uh, going at it uh, with, uh, say, 20% unknown words because I'm interested in what I'm doing. And, And as I listen to it for the third and fourth time, and I read it for the second and third time, and then I go through all my flashcards, the whole experience is enjoyable for me. Well, you you could argue that what what you're doing is really covering uh, three strands of the course, uh-huh. because when you when you start off with your reading, you're clearly right. doing language focused learning. Yes, because there's so much, so much that is unknown. Right now, we've we've done studies on English, mm-hmm. and and to get ninety eight percent coverage of English, where you're actually including proper nouns as words that can be considered as known. Right. So, 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 so they're, they're, they're part of that 98% coverage. Right. You actually need 9,000 words. Right. Or for a novel, you'd need about 8,000 words to read a novel with 98% coverage. Now, now in you're English, talking word read, families. Yes. Okay. Well, now, I'm talking about 9,000, 8 to 9,000 word families right. to get 98% coverage of what right. we call the running right. words or tokens. But I've read some of your material, and you suggest a, a, a 1 to 1.6 ratio uh, no, no, of, no. Wor- of word families to total word count. I read that no, in something I, you, you wrote somewhere. Yeah, uh, that's old. Oh, is that old? <laughs> and he, and, and even though one of the, one of the first things that... Uh, one of the first principles that students have to follow when they in, enter my courses is that you respect age. Right. That's one that I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, fight for now. I'll stop quoting the prob- you then. Yeah, the problem with that, that figure is it's dependent on the length of the text. Right. Because you're looking at what's called, it's a, it's a variant of type-token ratio, and right. type-token ratio is very strongly dependent on text length. Oh, I see. So that if you have a really long text, yeah. then that ratio of actually words to the number of members, number of times it's repeated, then can go up. I'm not talking about number of times it's repeated. I'm saying uh, in English where you have go and going. Oh, Uh, are you seeing how many members in a word family? Yeah, so that, because it just so happens that in our system, we consider every appearance, every different form of the word as a different word. Because we're saying, see, what we do in our system is when you save a word, we automatically capture all phrases in all of your content that use this word, and going is used differently than go. So you gather a bunch of phrases where the word going is used. So you get credit for go and going, and when, they're all different. 
And yeah. so I, I understood you in one of your articles to say that the difference between a word, like if you say 9,000 word families, I would say that on our count, you need 15,000 words. Word types. Word types. Yeah, okay. Well, well, the problem with that, well, there's a, there's a quick and easy way to find this out. Right. Uh, one way is to go to my website and download the program called the Range Program. Mm-hmm. And that's, there's a version there based on the British National Corpus, which goes up to the first 14,000 word families of English. Mm-hmm. And if you run that program and look at the figures just below the table, right. it'll tell you how many families are in each list, which is 1,000. Mm-hmm. But it will also tell you how many types right. there are in the same list. Right. And there's a very, very big difference in the number of types mm-hmm. amongst the high-frequency families mm-hmm. compared to the lower-frequency no families. Doubt. Far more types so, than the high-frequency ones. Yeah, so if you look okay. at the first 1,000, then you, I, I can't remember the figures, mm. but there'd be at least uh, probably five or seven or eight members of a family. Sure. Whereas if you look at, say, the eighth or ninth 1,000, there's barely two members to a family. For sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so... So you can't keep a, a, a standard figure for that because it differs okay, so good greatly from one for frequency sure. level to the other. Yeah. The other point I'd, I'd raise about that is you say that each word is used differently. Right. And when you look at production, say the speaking and writing, then I think right. the word type or is probably the best unit for counting. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at reception, right. that is understanding through reading and listening, I think the word family is the better unit for okay. counting. But one of the things we're trying to do in our system is get people eventually to be able to use them. And so when they save a word in the form, say, going, they will mm. collect 10 sample phrases of that word in use, which they're supposed yeah. to practice. And eventually they show up when they go to write and so that they'll find, you know, going is used differently than go. So we yeah, not, I, don't make necessarily, we don't necessarily treat it as purely receptive or purely productive. No, so that's, I, I don't think that's, I disagree that's with fair what enough. you're saying. Yeah. No, I don't think, I don't think we're disagreeing with each no. other. In, in the, uh, Sinclair, John Sinclair would agree with you in the terms of output because he right. argues that even different inflections, you know, the ING or the plural S right. results in the word having d- different collocates. Exactly. And that's what you're looking yeah. for is which words are used with which words. And, and I that's find right. in Russian where there's a tremendous amount of inflection, uh, yes. I just go about and I save all the different forms of these v- words. And yeah. then because our words show up in our vocabulary area sorted in different ways, but if I look at them alphabetically or if I search by roots, I'll find yeah. 7, 8, 10, 15 words that are all very similar and then I can just look at them and, and get a sense of which ones are used how kind of thing. So. So uh, we like saving individual types, as you call them. But so anyway, yeah. so uh, if I well, look at I, your, I, yeah, no, but I, I, I think you are do it also doing a good thing there. Yeah. At the moment, we've got a PhD student just starting who's right. looking at if you know the first one thousand words of English, right? How many lower frequency words does this give you access to? So that means. Um, now, what was a what was a good one? Oh, yeah. Say if say if you come across astonish, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, astonish actually has the root of stone, right? You know, so when you're astonished, you're turned to stone, right? Now, maybe that doesn't help with astonish very much, 
or it doesn't, you know, and so yeah. on. But what, what he's looking at to see is if you actually know the first thousand, mm-hmm. what roots in that will help you with words from the lower frequency levels? And no one's actually quantified that in a very systematic way. Yeah, but you know what? Uh, based on my experience with Russian, I would look at it quite differently. 